Welcome to Three Men and a War Game. I'm Paul, and apparently I have a really bad case of the giggles. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm Kevin, and I love painting pigs. Oink, oink. And I'm Potter, and I saved a ton of money by switching my insurance to Geico. All right. Nice. <laughs> that means you can buy right, more space marines. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Potter, uh, what are we talking about Oh, yeah, about that's today? my thing now, isn't it? <laughs> that's your thing now, man. <laughs> so today we're talking about Kickstarter, specifically Relic Blade Kickstarter. Yeah, and, and more, more specifically, Relic Blade on its face. Like, we're going we're gonna to talk about the Relic Blade Seeker's Handbook, yep. and we're going to get into uh, a dive on Relic Blade. But before we do that, uh, we're going to... You know, talk about hobby progress and all that stuff. Hobby so progress. Hobby, hobby progress. <laughs> do, 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 do. Uh, so I... Do, 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 do. <laughs> I, this week, uh, painted a regiment of... Uh, well, they're chain rasps, but they're not, they're not... It's not a regiment of chain rasps, right? They're painted for as, I think, revenants for Kings of War. So I got uh, 15 of these goo- like uh, ghosty boys airbrushed and painted and put on a base looking mighty intimidating i might must say but that's me that's all i did those that things how about you potter what'd you do i built uh space marines for infinity so pan oceana (laughs) (laughs) yeah i got a bunch of i got got a bunch of i got a bunch of shut up shut up Fine, I built some Space Marines. My son tucked me into it. He had a freaking meltdown when he saw some of my models, and I went and bought an Intercessor kick. My morals are gone. I have sold my soul. I'm a hypocrite. Just call me all the things I bought GW product. <laughs> no, you bought some Space Marines, man. They're cool. Just I know, live with it. but I sold my soul. <laughs> Space Marines are cool. End of story. I know. Yeah. Paul, what's your hobby progress? Uh, so, well, I actually legitimately, wait, I legitimately built Pan-Oceana models. <laughs> oh, cool. So that wasn't that a lie. That wasn't you a lie. I was actually... covering up for my shame by telling you something legitimate. The, the, best, the best lies are rolled in a nugget of truth. Yep. It's true. It, it is true. Yeah. I like the sentiment or something. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. I watched way too much X Files in my lifetime. Ah, uh, Paul, what'd you build? Uh, or paint? Well, I I finished a Infinity model. Uh, that's about it. Um, but what I did learn is that I really don't like everybody that lives in Madison, Wisconsin, that plays tabletop games and listens to this show. Because of them, I uh, have six millimeter models now. A bunch of yeah, that, that did not go where I thought it was going, and I'm <laughs> I'm glad are, it went where it did, though. <laughs> all of us are all of us are proud. By all of us, I mean me and Aaron. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean when very you see excited. giant dinosaurs, right? I mean, you gotta love that. By giant dinosaurs, you mean ridiculously tiny dinosaurs? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, like, ridiculously tiny. I, like, I was trying to imagine six millimeter being like, all right, well, it's like four times the size of, like, a, or, you know, a quarter of the size of a standard mini. I don't know oh, what no. I was thinking. It's not even close to that. Dude, those things yeah, are... I tried to tell you, it's less than half a finger. Those, I tried those to tell things you. are ridiculously small. I mean, it's yeah, like the, tiny. it's like, it's like the foot 
of a 28 mil model. Right. Yes. They're that, exactly the foot of a 28 mil model is pretty accurate. <laughs> how big they are. I mean, the big, the, the big small. like brontosaurus thing that you got looked pretty cool. Like that was nice. Yeah. Well, the thing that's is, the size that's, of a standard 28 mil. That's model. what I was gonna say. That's like the size of a regular model. Everything else <laughs> it's is a fucking brontosaurus. <laughs> Everything else is, and he's got like little dudes climbing on him and shit, and they're so tiny. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm just like baffled and amazed and excited. You know, I don't have anybody else to play with, but damn straight, I'm building and painting. I'm sure dudes. there yeah, is man. a certain local person here that would probably play it with you. Um, if 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 you're meaning the person that I think you're meaning, they play at a different scale. Oh. Well, now you just have to convince them to play at six mil. I'll just buy a dwarf army and make you play with me. Six mil is the truth, man. You can play it on a two by two at six mil. I know. Like, that's what I'm so, saying. So wait, so what is it that you got that was like the size of the foot of a 28 mil model? Dinosaurs. Right. I know. But what specific kind of dinosaur? There's a whole bunch. Yeah, man. They're like spearmen and bowmen. Okay. And yeah, think, so think if you like buy me uh, a dwarf army at that level, that's going to be smaller than that. Um, I mean, they're basically the same. No, it's just because like I didn't say I was. I didn't say I was buying you an army. I said I was fine. buying me. Okay, and you but we all with. knew what that meant. <laughs> well, then maybe you know other people will see it and like it, and then I have two. Okay. All right, but that's that's hobby progress. Yeah, that's the hobby progress. And we'll edit that one down. Yeah, yeah. And for <laughs> for news, for news, I don't have a whole lot. Game news. We got a, we got the Relic Blade Kickstarter, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, it's been going for a couple of days now. Um, excitingly, it, we'll talk about it. It's very very cool. Um, if you're if you're listening to this on release day, it, you have about a week. Yes, yeah, you have a week left. Um, and you can also we'll also talk about how you can buy a new Relic Blade without the Kickstarter. So for it's it's meant to be an episode that you can listen to anytime. But we will hit on the Kickstarter at the end. Also, uh, I would say that people who are interested in minis and mini painting uh, could also look at the Nemesis Kickstarter, which will also be going for about a week uh, still by the time this is over. And so if you haven't heard of Nemesis yet and you're in the tabletop gaming space, I don't know. Uh, it's like Alien, the board game. Uh, and there's a brand new standalone expansion expansion that's kind of like Doom, the video game, where it's like uh, Aliens on Mars. And the first one is like Aliens on a Ship. And it's a semi-cooperative game uh, with really, 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 really nice miniatures. Um, so yeah, that's that. Those are the two things I think that are uh, probably worth looking at. Uh, also, we I ca- we kind of got hinted at the price for the ninth edition starters coming in at uh, 120 pounds for uh, for 40k. For GW, for 40, yeah, yeah, we don't know, we don't know 40. if that's the the truth for sure, but uh, yeah. 120 pounds you probably expect 170 to 200 bucks US. So yeah. you know, take that with a take that with a lot of salt. It big is grain very of salt. much a very much yeah. a rumor right now. Yeah, and by the time you hear this, we might actually know the real price, and then we'll be idiots. Um, and that's game news. We're idiots. All right. All right. Now on to the main event where Chops convinces me to buy Relic Blade. Yes. So we're going to talk about Relic Blade, the adventure battle game. Oh, my God, you guys. I'm so excited. So right now, this is how long I've been wanting to talk about this. It is June 3rd, 2020. Uh, I bought into Relic Blade over Adepticon or Adepticant. Like when Adepticon would have been happening uh, is when I bought into Relic Blade. And I have been wanting to talk about it since I got it in my hands, which is like four or five days later because Sean is some kind of saint and sends things very fast. 
Um, so let's let's get to it, man. I've been waiting. I've painted two full warbands. I've played uh, a bunch of painted games, uh, and now am starting to play in a campaign. So with my wife. So I'm very excited and ready to talk your ear off and try to convince you that this is the best second game you could ever have. And for a lot of people could be an intro to minis or their primary game. I think there is enough game here for that, for a specific audience. Mm, okay. okay. So here we go. Uh, I think we can't talk about Relic Blade without first talking about the company that makes Relic Blade and that's Metal King Studio. Uh, and Metal King Studio, for all intents and purposes, is the man, the myth, Sean Sutter. Uh, Sean Sutter is a one-man band. He does all the sculpting, all the art, all the rules writing, and from what I can tell, all the design of the uh, the stuff. I mean, he's got some editors, uh, but he but outside of that, uh, he does almost everything. Outside of Malev, who is his studio painter and often collaborator on scenario design, but the company itself is just Sean. So as you look at this, uh, dear listener, and you're looking at the website and you've never seen this game before, know that this is the creation and comes out of the mind of a single human being uh, from art to concept, from concept to art, to sculpture, to rules execution, which I think is remarkable. I don't know if you guys have any, any specific. No, I mean, uh, the, the fact that it's one dude doing everything is, that's just stellar, especially it's my, it's, for it now it being in its second edition so it's gone through a rules you know, revamp of, of some sort and with the way that he's putting out the what is it the um the stretch goals for kickstarter it's it's impressive yeah, and he's and had so, a lot of successful kickstarters too and to clarify it's not the second edition of the game it's the second edition of the seeker's handbook so the rules are essentially intact and what he did is he folded in rules that he has enhanced and added to the game as the game has evolved and also errata and changed uh, information where errata was was needed. But the game is still the same. So gotcha. it's just the second edition of the book. Okay, so me, me, as, a, me as a bumpkin, I knew nothing about it. I thought it was a, yep. a rules change. So my, my apologies. No, 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 not at all. I just wanted to clarify that. So the second edition of the Seeker's Handbook is literally that. It's not necessarily Relic Blade 2.0. It's just the second edition of the book. Um, yeah, so that's that. So let's get into the game. Uh, and with the game, the way that we normally break stuff down is we're going to talk about the core mechanics and main features, and then we'll get into some more specifics. So the, the core things you need to know about this game, uh, is that there isn't necessarily a core rule book, the way that there's a core rule book for most other games. And, and that's to say it doesn't read like a core rule book for other games. It does have a front section of the book that's a lot of, that were not a lot of rules. It's only, you know, like 30 pages, 30 odd pages of rules. Um, but most of it is, in fact, things for playing the campaign rules. So pages 48 through 100 and something uh, is almost all campaign related and uh, ways to customize and enhance the game outside of the core rules themselves. And in that, this game is actually more like uh, an adventure role playing game, something on the uh, sort of on the level of a Mordheim. Right. Or like if you if you mixed a D&D core rule book with a miniatures book. So that is worth noting. And, and, and just hearing that, how do you what are your impressions, either of you guys on that? Well, I now understand why you want to sell me on it. Because, <laughs> I mean, we all know that my uh, 
I've been screaming for GW to remake Mordheim for quite some time now. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so let's get into it outside of knowing that the Seeker's Handbook, and that's the thing you need, right? The thing you really need for this game is the Seeker's Handbook and some models, because the Seeker's Handbook is like the tome of unlocking for this game. Uh, so things you need to know as a miniatures gamer. This game plays on a two-by-two -two play surface, so uh, what we would call on this show a micro-skirmish game. Um, uh, and it plays, really it's two to six models per side, because in campaign play you can start as low as 50 threat, which is the... the points value in the game and when you play at 50 threat really two to three models is what you can afford depending on your crew and even as you're going and expanding six models is probably the most that's going to hit the table uh and that's really the the number of models that you need to buy to play this game too because you have everything you need with a starter kit which is four models and then maybe one or two additional models because with a starter kit plus one model for most of the war bands, you're at a hundred points right there, which is the standard value for the game. Nice. Yep. That's easy. Yep. Super easy. Uh, super low uh, investment in the game. Uh, so uh, this is a alternating activations game. So, you know, we like that. Uh, that's the, the turn structure where I activate a model, you activate a model. So we're all activated out. Um, and now let's talk about the core mechanic of the game. And then once we talk through the core mechanic, I'm going to go through like a card anatomy, uh, because that's the easiest way to explain how the game actually functions on the table. So the core mechanic is D six tests and opposed roles in the game. Uh, pretty much every ability in the game, uh, from your basic abilities that are not printed on the cards to your printed abilities on cards is based on a D6 roll with a target number. And all of your characters, for example, are going to have the abilities printed right on the front of the cards. And as you look at an ability, it's got a print of a die on it. Uh, and when you roll a die, you're looking for that number to succeed. And that's it. That's the core mechanic. You roll a D6 looking for that target number. And the rules are very intuitive in a way that it's basically the, the core actions, which are easy to remember, very easy to remember. We'll go over all of them because they're simple enough to explain and I would expect you to remember. Uh, and then everything else is printed right on your cards. So that's it. Uh, when you're in combat, you roll for your combat action. Uh, and then once you roll for your combat action, you roll... If you succeed, you roll for your damage, your opponent rolls for defense, and the difference between those is the damage done to your opponent. Okay. And that's, that's the core mechanics. That's it. So we'll go through an example of combat, and then I'll explain the rest of the rules. So as we look at a card anatomy, you could see an attack like a bastard sword attack on a character. And on that attack, you will see a printed dice with a four face and plus three. And so what that means is you declare the action, I'm going to hit you with my bastard sword. You check distance after you've declared, and then as long as you're within a half an inch, which is the standard engagement range in Relic Blade, you roll your die. If you hit a four above, you succeed. If you don't, you fail the attack and nothing happens. If you succeed, you roll a second die and you add the number next to the attack. In this case, bastard sword says a d4 with four plus three. So you add that plus three to your die roll, and that's your damage roll. Then your opponent rolls a d6 and adds their armor. And anything left in the difference is damage put onto the character's card. That's it. Done. Okay, so you roll two dice, you get a three and a five. And then you're, so you're, then you're adding three on top of that for that plus three? Uh, you don't necessarily roll. T so you're looking at the Bastard Sword times two attack on the Bounty right. Hunter. So we have a card that we're looking at. And that actually means that she can make that attack time 
twice. Okay, because so you're still every, only rolling one dice, but you get to attack twice. That's correct. Because okay. every every to every action in Relic Blade outside of movement uh, can only be taken once per turn. Okay. So there's just like a blanket rule that all actions are once per turn unless specified as multiple, which is what the X would be on an attack. So if you see like an attack times two, that means you can perform it twice in a turn. Okay. Got it. But that's the core mechanic. And, and we can go through some of the other things. So movement is always difficulty one for standard movement, which means if you're, if you're paying attention, you don't have to roll a die, right? Because you can't do less than a one. But if you're going to climb, for example, climbing is uh, difficulty one per vertical inch. So if you want to climb up something that's three inches, you got to roll a three or better. Um, jumping, uh, so horizontal movement over the air, uh, is two difficulty per vertical inch or per horizontal inch. So if you want to jump across a gap that's three inches wide, you need to roll a six. Make sense? Yep. So far, I'm following. Cool. So very easy, right? The, it's like the, the simplest thing, the mechanics of the game. Uh, and so with that, let's talk about the actual anatomy of the card and then sort of transition into how that works within the game. So when you look at the anatomy of a card, you're going to have three stats in the upper left-hand corner. And those are really the only stats outside of your health that matter on your card and from a, like a standard war game perspective. So your first stat... Um, is your action dice stat. And that's what it is. What happens is when you activate a model, they generate a pool of action dice. And each time you want to take an action, you spend a die. So if you want to make a move, you spend a die. If you want to attack, you spend a die. If you want to focus or dodge, you spend a die, right? So if you have, for example, a bounty hunter, which is a card that we're all looking at on the show, that has a four in the upper left-hand corner. That means when the bounty hunter activates, she generates four action die that she can use however she wants for her turn. And this is where all, like a lot of the tactical decision-making happens in this game because everything you do costs an action die. So there's a, there's a standard action called focus. And this is another one of those actions that can only be taken once per turn. So remember, you can only take focus once per turn. And what focus is, is that you can take one of your action die and add it to any other roll. So if you're making an attack and you want to roll two dice, so you have a better chance of success, you can focus on it. If you want to jump or climb, you can focus on those as well. Outside of that, there's also the, there's also the dodge. And so if you dodge, you spend an action die and then you give your character some sort of notification that you've given them a dodge, like a dodge token. Uh, and with a dodge token, they can spend that for focusing on defense so they can roll a second die when they're rolling their armor rolls. Okay. Simple, right? Yep. Dead easy. But if you think about how that works in the frame of the game, it's not your standard thing where it's like you get two AP and you can move and do something. Like here, you have to be very thoughtful about how you spend your actions. And again, you can spend them however you want. So if you want to move four times with the bounty hunter, you can. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of uh, Guild Ball, really, actually, with... Um... With, with influence, yes. yeah, you know, but you don't have to allocate. You just get the amount right. that's on there, right? Right, but it, yeah, it, it works in the way of like again, you know, taking you each have time you do, yeah, each time you do something, you spend an influence, right? Yeah, right, and everything Very, costs that influence. That's correct. Everything costs the influence. Yep, right. and it's the same thing here. Everything costs an action die. 
Uh, and so the next stat you have is movement. So that's how far you move with a single movement. And that can get like really interesting because that can matter for things like climbing and stuff, right? Because that's as far as they can move in a single action. So if you want to climb up a surface that's six inches high, you have to make two moves and you have to succeed at both of them. Gotcha. Uh, because you're, you're, if you move three, right, you have to climb up three and then climb up another three. Uh, and the final stat is armor. And we talked about how armor works already, right? Once you take damage, you add your armor value to your D6 roll, and then that dictates how much damage you take. Uh, outside of that, on your on your card, you're going to have uh, health boxes on the bottom. Uh, and this brings us to the next stage of the game, which is talking about how it handles character injury and death. So every character has multiple health boxes. I think it's between like three and seven, depending on how strong or big your character is. And then there are different pieces of artwork on the boxes. One of them looks like a broken bone. And as soon as you eclipse the, the piece that looks like a broken bone, so once you fill that in, then when that character activates, they activate with one less action die because they're injured. Uh, and if they take damage to the skull, they fall prone. They don't die, they fall prone. Uh, and that's important because in this game, at the end of every round, so not activation, at the end of the round, there is a phase of the game where you can recover. And in this phase, you roll a die. And if you roll a six, your character erases that last wound and stands back up. But also, if they take any damage while they're on the skull, then they are killed. So what this means is, and if you've been paying attention, most attacks you can only do once. There aren't, like, not everybody has multiple attacks. So generally it takes either two characters or a very specialized character to kill anything in a single activation. Okay. Because once you go to the skull, you fall down prone, and then you have to take another damage before you can be killed. And to add to that... There is also a rule in this game where if you are being engaged by an enemy, you cannot target a character who's fallen down prone. And if you are engaging one of your prone allies, your, tar your opponents can't target that character until they deal with you first. It's called The rule is called protect your friends. And so basically what it means is in this game is that all your characters are heroic and they can stand back up with like a, you know, a wind of fortune and a breath and a, you know, a fresh breath of air. They can get back up and they can get back in the fight and you're, you can cover your friends when they fall. So that adds like a ton of, ta of tactical depth to where you're moving your characters and being aware of how fragile certain characters are and where they're standing on the battlefield. Right. No, that makes sense. And I, I like that thematic uh, theme of it, you know, again, if you're an enemy, why would you go after the die on the ground when you've got two or three other enemies you need to deal with? Yeah, you can't, right? Like, you can't be bothered to, like, strangle the life out of somebody while their buddy is, like, pointing a sword at you, right? Right. Um. So, and, like, that's, that is most of the core mechanics. Like, literally, I've explained, like, right now, you could, I, we could start playing a game, Potter. Like, I could put models in front of you, and I guarantee you now you would be able to start playing because I've told you, all the things on the front of your car you can use once unless it has a multiplier that tells you you can use it more than once. And then you have your basic action for moving, which includes moving, climbing, and jumping, and then focus and dodging. That's really the things you need to know before we start playing. 
Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly very simple. I mean, obviously, probably, you know, simple to understand, probably hard, to, you know, very hard to, to master. master. Exactly. And that's the key here, because every character in the game is very different. Like there is a wide range of abilities, health, armor, uh, and, and also magic spells and upgrades. So another thing you'll notice on the, on the side of your card is there's a black bar down the right-hand side of the ability tree for every character. And that bar is, if you've ever played X-Wing, then you know already exactly what you're looking at. There's a number of symbols there, and every one of those symbols corresponds to a type of upgrade and the number of that type of upgrade that a character can take. So uh, just an example of an upgrade that you might take, uh, I'll give you one, it's called Acid Shot. Uh, and what Acid Shot says is the next Sling and Stone attack gains an additional plus three damage bonus, and uh, you can use it twice. And that is a, it's a potion style uh, uh, upgrade. And that's it, done. Uh, there's also, for example, a neurotoxin upgrade, which is, says it's guaranteed only to be used on a rogue. Uh, and that's a keyword on a card that says rogue. And this says dagger attacks gain poison. And then basically characters that are hit by poison attacks suffer minus one action die during their next activation. And so it's, it's, a, it's the fact that your characters are highly individualized. You can customize them with the upgrades that you want from the cards that you have. Uh, and then the, the actual use and deployment of the tac the tactical resource, which is your action dice. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's the, I like the, uh, the idea of being able to kind of modify things as you go into it with the, with the add-ons. I, I saw on, when I was doing some research for the show, I saw that there were, you know, packs that you could buy of like add-on cards. And I wasn't sure what those were. So that uh, makes some, sense. Some of them are upgrades and relics. And then every time you buy a starter box, too, the starter boxes come with the character. They typically come with 10 cards. Uh, and there's usually four figures in a card, in a, in, a in a pack. So you get four figures and six upgrades that are, like, sort of uh, geared toward that faction's play style. Okay. So I got, I got a quick question for you, Kevin. Yeah, man. Uh, the negative dice, do that, does that stack like if you get hit with the, the poison and you're already at your broken bone? That's correct. Icon? So you'd be at minus two dice. Yep. Okay. When you activate. Cool. Yep. Uh, a couple other things just to hit on, just because, you know, that we, li we like rules here and we like to talk about it so that I want to make sure that people are listening, understand sort of the depth of tactical resources here. There's also a charge rule. And so basically what that's saying is that if you're unengaged when you start your activation and you end a movement engaging an enemy, then you immediately gain a bonus action die that you can only use to perform an attack. Cool. So that's cool. Uh, how, many, how many action die does a charge take? That, no, it's just a movement. So there's no charge move, action, move, okay. right? It's just that if you start unengaged and you make a movement and you end your movement engaging, you get that bonus die to make an attack. Gotcha. That's how so you charge. Not, so not something you have to declare. Okay. No, Got dude. It. Super intuitive. It's just as long. Think, it, think of it like Luke and Legion. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, also, it's worth noting that all melee ranges in the game are half an inch, but there are models that have uh, like one or two inch engagement ranges. So that's also worth a thing worth noting. Uh, so you can do things tactically with that, right? Like we've we've all played Guild Ball. We know what it's like being inside of a two inch engagement range with a one inch engagement character. It sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, right, because you don't get your bonus either because in order to charge, you have to... Be unengaged. Uh, be unengaged. That's right. So you have to spend a die to move in and then another die to attack. 
Yes, right. exactly. Uh, there's also disengagement rules, uh, which is just to say that um, you have a roll off with your enemy if you want to move out of their engagement range or through it. So if you are, are if you are if your path leads you through the engagement range of a character or you are engaged trying to disengage, you have to roll off with an enemy. And if you win, you get to move. If you don't, you stay put. Um, so that's your, your disengage. And the other thing that, that's worth noting is you can pre-measure most things in this game, but when you declare, the way that it works is that everything has to have a declaration before you measure, before you move, right? So like okay. you say, I'm going to make a ranged attack and then you measure distance. Uh, and the same thing goes for melee. So you got to be really sure you're within that half inch. Oof. Yep. Okay. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and because this game, it like, uh, um, the drowned earth is an intent based game, right? So generally what you're doing is you're communicating your intent to your opponent before you do anything. And then you do everything after you've declared intent. Right. Okay. Um, which I think again, makes it really tactically interesting. And so we've talked about critical wounds, which is when you break your bone and disable characters when you fall down. Uh, so I want to talk about the last couple things, really, which are cover and uh, some of the advanced rules. So cover is really simple. Um, I mean, I can basically read it right off. It's that if the defender is with a half inch of a terrain feature that obscures more than half of its base, it gets plus two armor against ranged attacks. And that's for, for hard cover. There's also rules for area cover and soft cover. Um, so partial cover is if your half your body is blocked and you don't have to be within an inch of it, half inch of it. Just like if a piece of terrain is obscuring more than half your character, you get plus one army and it, or armor. And if you're in an area that you've, you've declared as area cover, you get plus one armor. So if you've got like a thicket of trees, right? You can say this area of trees is area cover. And then while you're standing in it, you get plus one armor against ranged attacks. So simple, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah cool uh we talked about the recovery phase already so that's after the after your full action phase you have your recovery phase every character that's been activated rolls a die uh if they roll a six or if they're a pig and they have a rule that lets them roll on a five or if they've taken an upgrade that lets them roll a five plus they stand back up they basically recover one health box and stand back up and be activated the following round um and then we have uh critical hits to talk about and outside of that i think you guys would basically know how to play so critical attacks, uh, I bet one of you guys could guess, but rather than make it awkward for you, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> so when you look at a, an attack on a character, so if we look at our bounty hunter that we've been looking at and we look at her bastard sword attack, you'll see the bastard sword attack has a four on it. So guess what, guys? If you roll that four, critical hit. <laughs> gotcha. Awesome. Simple. Uh, and if you get a critical hit, uh, you get plus two damage. Done. Cool. So now, assuming four or, uh, four or higher. No, just a four. If you, okay, so, so four higher four. is a success. Four higher is a success. If you roll four on the nuts, that's a crit. Okay, so kind of like Infinity, you, only, you need a 20 on the nuts to get the crit. Got it. So the other thing to note here is you'll see there are attacks with two, and this is why I selected this picture. To bit. So the crossbow, for, as an example, on the Bounty Hunter card has a range of 12, and it rolls two dice. Now, what that means is it also requires two action dice to take the action. Because okay. using a crossbow is unwieldy, right? right you gotta sure. you got to load it. It takes more of your time. So it takes two dice, and when you roll it, you need a four on 2d6. 
So you need two, because basically you're saying two two faces. And so that's telling you the sum of that is four. So you need a four, not, not like, it doesn't have to be they're both above two. It's just you need a four total. Okay. But if you roll two twos, that's a crit. So okay. very hard to get, but got it. But also there's things like, imp- so that, but now, let, now let's talk about how this design space works, right? Because you also have a character like the Iguan Poacher. And the Iguan Poacher has an attack called Impale that requires two dice, and it has a four and a three. Which, as you guys know, uh, rolling dice, on, rolling 2d6, a seven is your most likely result. But a four mm-hmm. and a three isn't necessarily, right? So right. high chance of success, lower chance of critical, but still higher than doubles. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. So the design space for critical hits is really interesting. And now, if you guys are thinking, you remember that I told you that you can always spend an action die to focus an action. And that's anything, right? So you could focus an attack. So that means you roll another dice in. And with this, I need to explain a little bit more because now all three dice have to match one of the numbers. So in the case of the crossbow, you need three twos to get a crit. Uh, Mm. In the case of the Iguan Assassin uh, that I was talking about before, or not the Iguan Assassin, the Poacher, you need all three dice to be either fours or threes to get a crit. Mm. But... But, but, but the critical rules change a little bit because if three or more dice are rolled for a critical, instead of plus two damage, you get plus two D six damage to the attack. Ouch. So the critical is less likely, but also much more impactful. Yeah. Especially with such a low health pool. Right. Yes, exactly. Now you're starting to get it. (laughs) Uh, For sure. And then critical hits on two, two dice are plus one D6. So it's basically you roll one dice, a crits plus two damage. Two dice are rolled, it's plus one D6 damage. Three or more dice are rolled, it's plus two D6 damage for a crit. So in, in, in your experience, Kevin, having played the game a bit, um, how often do you see crits on those types of rolls? They're rare. Uh, and they, sh- yeah. they and, and because they're rare... As they, they should be. They right, should be, but right. But at like a Red Joker in Malfo, it's highly impactful when it happens. Right. Does it feel does it feel fair because of that rarity? It does feel or fair. Is it, just it, de- like, it, ah, it definitely feels fair before, because of the rarity. But you got to remember, this is a D six based game, right? And so there's always the chance that, like, even when you roll and you have a plus four attack, and I only have one armor, you might roll a one and I might roll a six, and then it's like sure, sure. womp womp, right? <laughs> like, right. That's just right. that's just I how mean, it yeah, goes. That's going to happen. But still, you know, I mean, it's it's just at, you know out of curiosity on how that that feels because if that's abused in the system. Uh, or is too too fair? You know, happens too often. It could. It, d- definitely it definitely doesn't because you have to hit miserable. because you have to hit the numbers like right on. It it's definitely not as bad as you would think it is, right. especially okay. with two dice attacks. Right. Um. So yeah, so that's the core rules, you guys. Um. And outside of that, you know, there's some basic keywords that you need to know, and you don't necessarily need to remember them because most of the rules are printed right on the cards. But you have things like uh, we talked about poison a little bit, uh, but there's also deadly. So deadly attacks. If you hit someone with a deadly attack and disable them, you remember how I told you uh, if in the recovery phase, if you roll a six, you stand up. Mm-hmm. But if you don't roll a six, you still lay there and then you could potentially get another recovery roll at the end of the next round. Ah, but a okay. deadly attack states that if you fail your recovery roll, you die. Oh, ouch. makes sense. 
Yeah. And then there's rules like dire. Dire ignores armor. So then you're just rolling a naked defense roll when you get hit rather than getting your armor bonus. Oof. Owie. Uh, there's also a bind action, which if you get bound, you get bound with a value like die, like bind three. And then if you want to move before you move, you have to pass a test with the target number equal to your bind to get out of the bind to move. Okay. And like, just to, you know, give you some examples of like basic ways that the core rules are played with and different things that you have to think about in terms of like status effects. I feel like I've seen that somewhere else in another game, and I'm trying to think of where. But, I mean, it's pretty cool, right? Yeah, I like yeah. I like that in a in a miniatures game that you know you don't, it's not something you see often. It's I feel like it's something that you get in video games or in RPG, you know, pen and paper games that you don't see translated into like tabletop war games really all that often. So that's a, right. that's a unique. Yeah, I like that. Right. And so the core mechanics, right, they're simple. Like, I, I bet you if I set models in front of you guys right now, you'd be comfortable playing the game. Like, without me giving you cards to look at or models specifically to, to, to like, like, consider or having to worry about all the other things that might happen in the game, like, you could start competently playing right away. Yeah, right. I, feel, I feel comfortable with that, yeah. And, and that's, I think, amazing, right? The fact that you, can, you could potentially just start playing right away. Uh, very very cool and th- like this game took me 10 minutes to explain to my wife we were going in 10 minutes hmm. which for most miniature games that's just not true that's pretty right, right. Yeah. yeah yeah that's usually not heard of in miniature and games. and then even after that 10 minute explanation character people are like looking at their cards and like being confused about what they can do and can't do right because there's so much text on their cards or the abilities mm-hmm. they have to think about and all sorts of auras and weird stuff and that kind of thing just doesn't exist here like all the tactics are in positioning and managing your resource, which is your action die. Right. Um, so really cool. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about the setting of the game, right? Because that's part yeah. of the attraction here. So the thing you have to know about this game is because you see it as you look, and on its face it just looks like your standard fantasy game, but this is actually a post-apocalyptic game. Okay. Um, so basically the characters that inhabit this world, they don't know much about the ancient civilizations because they were just like basically wiped off the map, uh, into very small pockets. So they've started just recently moving back and forming new pockets of society, but there's all sorts of magic and technology that they don't understand because the, basically what they know is that there was a huge war, uh, and after this huge war in this event, it's called the Wars of Annihilation. Uh, and after the, the Wars of Annihilation, basically the, there was just splintered troops of like warlords and people getting murdered and, you know, little tiny pockets of society and not a whole lot of uh, uh, actual societal norms that we would think of now. And now we're just in this age where they're starting to rebuild. Um and they're just starting to reform. Like basically, the the campaign setting for the campaign book called the Volge Lands explains that uh, Riverhole, which is a, a city that's basically been reclaimed from the dying world, uh, is a city that that people have just started moving back into and just starting it to basically reestablish government and trade. So that's kind of where we're at, right? Post-apocalyptic fantasy. So basically a fantasy world of high magic and, fan- and things like that, but then everything fell apart and went to shit and is now being rebuilt. Hmm. Okay. So that's pretty cool, right? Like post-apocalyptic fantasy isn't really, uh, it's pretty unique right on its face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you don't have a lot of that. 
Um, and so that's the, that's the main thing to note about the setting. Uh, and now what I want to talk about a little bit here, Potter, is campaign play. <laughs> uh, and before we talk about campaign play, I'm going to talk about the scenarios because I know Paul is a scenario guy and I know, yeah. Chris, you like scenarios too, mm-hmm. right? So let's talk a little bit about scenarios first before we get into campaign play. So here's a, I'm going to give you a ba- the basic rundown of in my, in, in what, in my opinion, is the like marquee uh, scenario for Relic Blade. And that's called Ancient Waystones. Uh, so Ancient Waystones. Also, know that deployment in this game is corner. Uh, unless otherwise noted, it's corner deployment for everything. So oh, that's interesting. The, the, okay. the, and the maps will tell you if it's not corner or, or if it's the middle of a board edge or a board edge instead. Um, and it's basically four inches off the corner. So there's generally an A or a B or multiple A's and B's so that you can pick different corners and then you deploy four inches from the corner. So that's the thing to note about ancient waystones first is deployment. It's basically opposite edges, right? So you're not going to deploy right across. You're always deploying, uh, all the way across. So across the long side, right? Right. Right. Um, and now, uh, here, here's the setup and rules. I just want to read it because it's like st- straight off the page. It's actually not a lot of text. So you roll for initiative and deploy as normal, which we just talked about. Then it says place three standing stones in a diagonal alignment perpendicular to play or deployment. And they have to be eight inches apart. So basically you're placing one in the middle across from each other and then one eight inches toward the corner that nobody deployed in and one eight inches toward the other corner that no one deployed in. Okay. Okay. Uh, so each waystone may be activated once per round by performing a special activate action. Any character excluding beasts or constructs may attempt to activate a waystone. Once a waystone has been activated, it cannot be activated until the next round. And each time uh, a, a waystone is successfully activated, the controlling player gains one victory point. You may only perform this action while unengaged. And then it shows you there's a, there's an, uh, it's a basically a, a, like, if you look at the attacks on the card, it's a it's an activate action, uh, and it requires a five to get it. And then you get one BP if you succeed. Uh, and how this works is the first player to five points wins the game. And that's it. So you've got your three things in the middle of the board, and you are trying to be the first person to touch touchy the button five times. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That seems uh, simple enough. Simple enough. And you think about it. Now, remember, I said there's three of these, right? And in general, you're going to have like four-ish models. So, uh, and team tactics are very important, right? Because we talked about how like recovery roles work and protecting your friends. So you have to be really considerate about where you are and whether or not you're just going to leave somebody with a model that's being able to try to attempt a waystone each turn. Um, now you can focus that action, right? But then that's that one character's focus for the turn is trying to focus and activate. So it's, uh, it it makes for some really interesting games and that that's, that's one scenario. And now I want, if you will, uh, give me one more scenario to describe, because this is my favorite scenario by far in the game so far. And this is the pack yak escort. Okay. So yeah. Okay, yeah, I saw that model on their webpage. Okay. Yeah, you can buy a model for the pack yak. All right. So you roll for initiative. Uh, the initiative player can choose if they want to be the escort or the ambusher. And now the escort, rather than deploying in a corner, deploys 
basically with you take the middle of the edge of a board, right? So the long edge measure to the middle, so 12 inches in, and then four inches out in a half circle from there is your deployment. And then your yak goes in that spot too, right? So you also deploy the yak <laughs> in that four inch zone. And then ambushers can deploy in the opposite corners or if they stay out of line of sight, they can deploy 12 inches up the board and six inches in. So they have like little rectangles that they can come up into what's called the ambush zone as long as they're out of your line of sight when they deploy in the ambush zone. Right. And how this game works is at the beginning of the recovery phase, and you'll recall the recovery phase is after everybody activates, Mm -hmm. um, the player with the most followers within a court, within a half inch of the yak moves the yak five inches in any direction. And the yak treats all characters as friendly. So basically uh, as long as you have more characters, you move it uh, five inches in the direction you want. So here's victory. The escort is victorious. If he moves it off the opposite edge and the ambusher is, is the winner. If they take it off either of the non escort board edges. So, the side edges, right? So as the ambusher, all you have to do is get it off the side of the board, but the person who's actually escorting has to take it all the way across. Hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, and that's pack yak escort. And I love this mission. It's so fun. Cause you're just fighting around this yak the whole time. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. I, I just love the fact that they make you a model for, and the model for it's actually really nice looking too. Yeah. Uh, and that's the kind of scenarios that you have here. Right. So, um, generally like not what I would call like tournament scenarios, right? It's much more like narrative and fun and like clinking beers stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's some scenarios. So you've got some scenarios in mind. Uh, so what do you guys think? Like so far you've heard the core rules, you've heard the scenarios. Where are you guys at on interest level for the game? Uh, I'm going to wait until the end. All right. I think I'm going right. to give a surprise ending. Okay. I think, I think, I think. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. So let's talk about campaign play because that is here. We, oh here, here here's going to be the, here's where it's going to sell me or, or not. Oh boy. Here, here, here we go. So uh, the campaign in this game, it, it, I mean, this is the, this is the reason you play. Uh, and so I don't, I, I've thought about how to organize this discussion and without just starting to gush and gush, I don't know how to do it. Um, so we're just going to go through some stuff in the order the book presents it. Cause otherwise I'm going to get lost and I'm going to be like, but this, but this, but that, uh, so here we go. So the first thing you do is it, as, as you're establishing a campaign 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 or is <laughs> you set up a base, you set up a base. Uh, and you have your different bases and right off the bat. So you've got in, in the core book, your three base styles are arcane tower, frontier outpost and ancient stronghold. Um, and so what this does, this choice is it gives you your starting influence and you use your starting influence in this game in the camp. So you have three campaign resources, influence, gold, and valor influence is what you use to purchase new, both followers and NPCs Potter, you get NPC party members. Okay. (laughs) and also upgrades for your character. And then gold is what you also use to purchase things. And valor, you think of as what you use individually for characters. So there is an NPC character type that can train your character in new abilities, and valor is what you use for that. Okay. Uh, Also, so that and the way you choose here indicates how much influence, gold, and valor you start with right off the bat. And then there's also a special rule. So when we talk about our our uh, 
NPCs. Your NPCs are your smith, your scribe, your chemist, and your artisan. And if you start at the frontier outpost, because it's an outpost, you start with all four at the novice level. But if you take the ancient stronghold instead, you never pay influence costs for tactics upgrades, right? So where you choose to start actually makes a big difference on how your warband develops over the course of a campaign. All right. So pretty cool, right? Pretty cool. So now let's talk about those NPCs because you know what a character looks like, right? So there, there's basically, there's two types of followers. You have adventure followers, which are your standard characters like the bodyguard or bounty hunter we've been talking about for the whole episode, but also there are specialist followers. And so how these work is you have to pay for them in tiers. So it's five influence for the novice, 10 for the journeyman and 20 for the master. And they have to be purchased in succession. So you can't just spend 20 for the master. You have to spend the five, then the 10, then the 20. And when you get them, just as an example, the smith, when you have the smith, and you pay for the novice smith, that's how in the campaign you get access to any weapon upgrades. Like you literally cannot take weapon style upgrades until you take a smith. Okay. And then when you get the journeyman, then you get access to class specific weapon upgrades. So if you have weapon upgrades that are only for rogues, you have to have a journeyman before you can buy those. And then the master gives you what's called a masterwork weapon. And what that does is it tell, basically you get an upgrade for one of your characters that permanently reduces the difficulty of one of their attacks by one for the rest of the campaign. Uh, and all four of them are like that, right? So like the scribe is for mages, the chemist is for potions, uh, and the uh, artisan is for item style upgrades. So it's like single or multi-use items. And then the one we haven't talked about yet is called a master at arms because a master at arms isn't someone you hire. It's someone you have to seek out. Uh, and when you are in between games, you can spend both gold and influence to purchase new tactics upgrades for your characters. And so tactics can be things like for the pigs. For my army, there's a tactics called pig out, which lets them... Uh, when characters are disabled, to, instead of like stepping on their neck, you eat them for health. Gross. <laughs> but huh. you need a, but you need to have a master at arms teach you how to do that before you can do it. So how do you search for the master of arms? Is it something that's done off game? Is it it's just in, in so in, in between rounds you're able to do it. But the key is that you can't hire a master at arms, right? So most of these things, as you're buying stuff, you're purchasing them for gold. So you're purchasing the upgrades for gold. Uh, and the master at arms, because it's a person you have to sort out, you have to pay influence and gold. Because the influence is the, the sort of like representing the opportunity cost of finding them. Gotcha. Right, right. So that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. And now we're going to talk about Valor, and that's heroic traits. So Valor is awarded by the scenario and also uh, through a couple general rules. So like every time your character eliminates another character, they get Valor. And then you can spend Valor in between to gain new traits. And so just an example, you know, I'll give you some examples. So forceful blow. After hitting and damaging an enemy, you may move them one inch directly away. And then you have that for the rest of the, the campaign that costs you two Valor to take that. So if we look at one that's more expensive, five Valor. Five Valor lets you take true grit. This character gains tough. Your recovery rolls are now on a five plus instead of a six plus. Mm, that's pretty huge. Yep. Yeah, that's nice. 
right? And and Paul, for for the thing that you don't like about this game, right? All you're doing at the end of a scenario. So every one of those things I talked about earlier. So we'll just think we'll take about like uh, look at it like in terms of the pack yak as an example, right? So the victor gains 20 influence and a pack yak treasure. The defeated player gets 20 influence uh, and two gold. And the pack yak treasures are dope. Um, but generally, you get similar rewards, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then all you're doing is deciding in between games what you're going to spend that on to make your characters better for the next game. So the upkeep isn't like a ton of stuff, right? It's just recording how much valor you got and then either saving it or spending it or valor and influence right. and gold. Okay. So that's not too bad on the, you know, upkeep. No. And, and what it really means is like, if, so if you're doing it in a campaign style, so like we, we, I played a game with LR, our first game in our campaign. It took us uh, like 35 minutes to play the scenario and then 10 minutes to decide what we were going to do with the after scenario stuff. And now we're okay. ready for the next game. That's, that's much better. Cause I know like oh, when we were doing the kill team campaign, when it first came out, man, we would spend 20 minutes almost a half an hour just on the wrap-up phase to doing the maintenance no it doesn't take that it doesn't take that long you don't have to i mean you can right if you really want to like take it and min max sure you can spend that time but it doesn't take that time if you don't want it to well and that's the thing though is that like i don't want it to feel like it's it's effort like if it's if it's you know has an option to be easy and isn't frustrating that's an entirely different thing than if the whole setup is just right and it's not right it's like you look at this you you look at your your sheet that shows you what you've purchased so far because basically the way that the the sheets work is like for your four npc style characters it's just a checkbox that lets you know which level you have so you right. can immediately, and it also tells you what they do. So like you can immediately know what you have and you're like, okay, I've got the novice guy that lets me buy weapons and I've got the gold to spend on this weapon. So I'm going to take the sling and stone upgrade and put it on this character done. Okay. Uh, super easy. Um, and so now I want to talk about my favorite part of the campaign. Oh my God. My favorite part is called fate weaving. And so fate weaving makes influence into in, in, in the second resource. So we talked about action dice, right? And action dice are cool. Um, but, you know, we like games to have m- more than one style of resource management. And mm-hmm. fate weaving gives you a resource that you have to manage over multiple games. Okay. Because right. it, it, it turns influence into a, a, a system that's managed in games. So there are six main fate weaving actions that you can take inside of a game. We don't need to read all of them, but I want you to know how impactful they are. So I'll read a couple. Uh, So diverge, which is the most simple to understand. Uh, You can use this. Also, you can use fate weaving once each per game, right? They're once per game actions. So diverge costs five of your influence, which remember you use to hire characters, upgrade stuff, buy new people for your party. You use five of those influence for a die reroll. You could also use five for plus two armor against a single hit. Uh, additionally, you could use five influence if you would like to give yourself one additional action dice on a character. And now we can talk about uh, another specific one, which is aid. So aid is 10 of your influence, but you add plus three to a recovery roll after you roll the dice, right? So you could roll 
and see that you rolled a three and be like, nah, fuck it. I'm spending 10 influence. My guy's standing up. <laughs> okay. And also additionally, so this carries your influence that you have from game to game, but also uh, you decide what the threat value of a scenario is going to be. So you say we're going to play 90 or 100 threat. If I bring 90 threat worth of characters, I can now take that 10 subtracted and use that for fate weaving. So it's kind of like soul stones in Malifaux. Gotcha. Um, and this man, it, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it adds so much to the weight of your influence and allows you to have really heroic moments, uh, in the game when you use these things effectively. Um, so yeah, that, I just think it's really cool. Yeah. I like that. Um, cause I was wondering when you're going through stuff earlier, I was wondering if there was a mechanic to kind of like, as you say, cheat fate using the Malifaux terms, um, that thought did cross my mind earlier. So that's all now that fate weaving, is that only in the campaign system or if like you're just um, playing normal I, scenarios, I mean, you could for, you could say that any, any, uh, you could say we're going to play a hundred point game and you could say anything you don't bring, you can use for fate weaving. Gotcha. But remember the, the fate weaving actions are either five or 10. So mm-hmm. you would you would really be like trying to game it so that you spent either ninety five or ninety. Gotcha. Um, so that you could use them, but it's just one of those things where, like, in, in the game, if you think about that tactical that that tactical think like mindset, right? Like, you just got hit. You know you got hit. You know that the damage roll incoming is plus three, and your guy has two armor. And you're looking at your your influence, and you're like, damn, I've got seventy five influence in the campaign right now. Oof, it's not going to hurt me that much to spend 10 to give my guy plus two armor to give him a better chance of surviving this attack so that I can hit back in the next round. Right. No, that right? makes sense. But then, you know, maybe you might come to regret that, right? You might wish you had that influence later. So they like giving you a, a, a multi-game resource to manage is just a thing that I'm not used to because it's, it's, you know, it's not something that you have in a lot of war games because you're not typically playing with a campa- campaign mindset. So that just adds so much to the game. Right. No, I like that. So that's fate weaving. Um, The other thing to talk about uh, is that there is also um, injuries. And so injuries are pretty simple. But I mean, if you've played more time, you know how injuries work. And it's pretty similar, right? You roll a die. Your character is either fine uh, or permanently injured or dead. Right. Um, So that's pretty simple. And now, and we've talked about some of the standard scenarios, but a thing that I want to talk to you about now is that there's also a section of the thing called uncharted scenarios. All and right. so let's talk about uncharted scenarios for just a second, because this is going to, again, bring you, I think, back into your Malifaux mindset. So if you're going to do uh, uncharted scenarios, you roll a D6 three times. And so what you're going to first do is you roll a D6 as a D3, and that determines your deployment style, either split party, ambush, or skirmish. Okay. Then you roll a d6 to determine what the scenario is going to be. Whether that be like anchoring flames, pack yak, mythic monster, shifting shrine, trap knowledge. There's a whole bunch of different ones. Mm-hmm. And then you roll another d6 to determine what the treasures are going to be. So it's a lot like the card, the mission cards for Age of Sigmar that they put out. 
Yeah, yeah, it randomizes. Exactly. Like it, random, it randomizes your scenario. I like so you're that. not like, let's play this can scenario. It's like you have these three different deployment styles, these six different missions, and these six different types of treasures that can be in it. And for the purpose of uh, campaign play, that makes a huge difference, right? Because like finding a health potion in a treasure in, in a treasure in a campaign game is huge. Or finding two gold or a magic weapon. Like there's just so much stuff that can happen there. Yeah, no, that was one of my favorite things about Age of Sigmar was that card system to to randomize your mission setups, your terrain setup, or not well, not so much your terrain, but your deployment setups and like hidden objectives or other things that are affecting you during your gameplay. I like that. And guys, we haven't even talked about relics yet. <laughs> Jesus, this game's got so much. And so relics are another series of cards you can get, and these are like uh, the old the treasures of the old world. Right? Like, this is the post-apocalypse, and these are the things people are raiding for, is these ultra-powerful relics. So some relics give you new fate-weaving actions that only you can use if you possess the the relic, which is amazing just on its face right if you think about how cool that is that you get these like brand new abilities that only you can use with with basic basically fate weaving super cool now outside of that you also get things like just i'm just going to read one right uh the arctic war blade which when you give it to a character gives them a sword that hits on a three plus for three plus damage and stun okay so now you've got this bad-ass weapon that you can put onto a character and bring that in. Or you have the Crown of Madness, which gives you an ability called the Voices, which lets you put a bind, th- bind uh, three and does damage to a character on a four plus. So amazing. Amazing. But yeah, that's... Uh, and also the thing about the Crown of Madness is the player who has initiative always controls the character with the crown of madness. So if you put, if you put the crown of madness on your character, you get this ultra powerful attack. And if you're wearing the crown, you get plus two on your initiative rolls. But if you're not the initiative player, then your opponent controls your character. That doesn't sound good. I mean, it's great. That's, that's a great card. It's, it's well, because it doesn't sound good for the opponent. Sorry, I should clarify. <laughs> I was gonna say because the range eight on a on a twenty four by twenty four board with an ability that takes a four to succeed and has plus four damage and bind is huge. It's like one of the most powerful attacks in the game. So good. Okay. Um, and so that's just a couple examples of the relics and basically how these scenarios work, uh, especially when you're looking at those create your own scenarios, is that you generally take the center objective and you turn it into a relic token instead. And then if a player is controlling the relic token at the end, they get to keep that relic for the rest of the adventure or the rest of the campaign and they can take it from adventure to adventure. Uh, so I like, I like that aspect it, of it. Yeah, man, if you think about that, like D&D, right? That's like really cool magic weapons and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you you basically, you know, this was mine. I found it. I'm going to keep it and keep it with me while we're still adventuring. No, that makes, I like that. Yeah, man, amazing. All right, so that's that's, uh, just an example of relics. Uh, And I think, you know, I've been going on for a while. uh, And the last thing I want to talk about, because there's still (laughs) more we haven't talked about, is environments. Uh, and I, I want and you'll understand why I want to talk about environments and not skip over it in just a second. So 
The core book, uh, it, it has a number of them. I, I wish I had remembered right off the bat how many. It has four environments. And then the, the Volge lands have two more. So if you have both books, you have six environments. So let's talk about what an environment does. Uh, so we'll take it in the, the, the frame of one single environment of the arid badlands. So when you look at environment, the first thing to know about an environment is that there are six special rules that dictate the environment. And what the game advises is that when you're playing in the campaign, you choose an environment that the battle is happening in, and then you roll a dice twice. And you take the two that it lands on. So you, if you think about it, if we think about the Arid Badlands, it has six rules. So, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, you roll two dice and you take the two that you land on. Um, Reroll, re a double, right? So you might get sweltering heat. Uh, an oppressive heat takes its tolls on your followers. Any character with armor two suffers minus two AD for the first round. And any characters with three armor do not activate during the first round as they must refasten their armor that they took off while traveling because it's so fucking hot. <laughs> okay. Uh, another one is a roving basilisk. So now you've got a roving basilisk monster, which which takes what's called the hunter behavior because there are NPC characters that can pop up on the map and monsters. And there's a monster generator that you can use to generate monsters that come And The monsters follow two behaviors. One is either it's guarding something on the board or the other is it's seeking out characters to kill them. Okay. And so the, ro the roving basilisk is that, but also you might have a badlands treasure, which says place a weathered and mummified remains of some unfortunate humanoid, at least six inches away from other treasure objective or character. And then when somebody gets it, you roll uh, on a chart to find out what that thing is. So, okay. and that's just one environment. That's just the arid badlands. There's also a ruins environment, a fey forest environment, a swamp environment. Like there's a, they're, um, they're just, they're all cool, man. Every one of them is cool. There's a dark dungeon environment where the game actually like has rules and encourages you to make on the two by two board, like a straight up dungeon rather than an out. Yeah. I mean, I, I could tell from their website with some of the stock photos they're at, like they, there's definitely like a lot of these, you know, kind of city ruins outside, but then they've got a couple in there where it's definitely looking uh, very similar to kind of an old school Hero Quest board setup, kind of. Hi, right, everybody. Uh, this is Kevin. Uh, big oopsie. Uh, oopsie. I lost power, and uh, I was in the middle of a roll there. I was in like a fucking, I don't know what it is, but I, we lost power, and uh, this is a secondary recording for me, so it's going to be a little bit awkward, uh, but that's okay. Uh, we're back, and we're going to keep talking about Relic Blade, uh, and so I was talking as my power cut out about Dark Dungeons uh, and how the game, you know, even talks to you about, like, setting up a two-by-two -two as sort of a dungeon with locked doors, and there can be monsters that pop out of them. Yeah, no, and I and I was well. You were right as you got disconnected. I was saying like I I like that because that gives me that kind of old school Hero Quest uh, board game feel. You know, back from when I was playing it when I was a kid. So I, that's definitely something I like uh, in those kind of things. Yeah, and much like uh, one other thing I want to talk about too is the, the the monster generator. So there's a thing where again, it, like the scenario, you roll three dice. Uh, and what happens is you roll it to see how big it is. Does it have three health, four health, or five health? And then you roll, is it a humanoid beast or arcane? And then that gives it a special ability. 
And then based on that, you roll D6 to find out what its attack is, and then D6 to find out what its innate ability is. So you have, like, a straight-up monster generator. Hmm. Uh, which is rad. I like that. I like that idea. <laughs> so you can make, like, custom monsters for your scenario. And then if you think about it, if you're, like, a person who, li- like me, likes to design a campaign, you can randomly roll your monsters, and then based on what you randomly rolled, design what it is. Hmm. Like, right? Like, I got a size medium beast with a reaping claw and flying. So, what is that? So... Does does he sell like monster kits just like, you know, no, with my wife, as an example, there's a banshee monster and I've been using a Warhammer banshee. Okay, Uh, so that's what I was thinking, like, just grab what you kind of have to to represent it, you know, maybe maybe some uh, what is it? uh, The the Reaper bones models kind of things. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then the la- the last thing I want to talk about before I start talking about opinions is that the the game sort of it's got a winning the campaign section, and really what that's telling you is how you know giving you advice like a D and D player's handbook would give you an advice on how to do a limited quest line, how to do something based off exploring, how to do a map based campaign uh, to determine who wins the game. Uh, and, and then after that, it's basically just the end of the game. They give you uh, a list of basic upgrades, campaign traits, items, and a roster sheet that you can copy out and use for your campaign games. Um, and that pretty much takes us through the Seeker's Handbook. Um, so not even talking about models or sub-factions, Potter. Where are you at right now on this game in terms of like the the ability to play like a camp because the games of this take half an hour to 45 minutes hour at the most. So you could realistically play a three to five game campaign in an afternoon. So my thoughts, my thoughts are, um, I have already spent $93. (laughs) Yes. Fuck. Yeah. So, and I spent mission accomplished. I spent those $93 Maybe an hour ago. <laughs> so it's yes, it's, yeah. You've been you've been going on talking. I mean, it just I mean, we so in the preamble. Uh, I don't know how much we got recorded in the in the preamble. Well, before we started doing the show, you know, we talked about the the, the only issue I have had so far is essentially faction identity in in terms sure. of picking these models. It's it's not to say that the models aren't good looking. The models are good looking. Yeah. They're they're very interesting sculpts. Um, the, the especially the ones that are coming in this specific Kickstarter. Um, you know the the Beaky Boy is really cool. The pig guy with the bastard sword is really nice. Um, the lizardman guy is really so. I'm definitely very much leaning towards the adversary side of, of factions. Um, it's just, I haven't really found something that clicks for me with, with model wise, but from a rule standpoint, regardless if anyone doesn't pick this up in the Raleigh area and I have somebody to play with in the Raleigh area, this is something that I can see that will scratch my Mordeheim itch mm-hmm. and I can play with my kids very easily as they grow up. Yes, dude. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. So with that even being said, just it was it was a buy. It just, Amazing. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm in. I have I have pledged at the eighty five dollar level. 
Uh, so I will be getting the two-player starter set and all the glorious goodness that comes with it. Mission accomplished. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> you are done, sir. Now you just have to convince Paul to play. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the Kickstarter and how you buy in and what the sub-factions are, right? Uh, maybe not all the sub-factions because we've already been talking a while. Um, and you can honestly go to the Metal King site. It's just – it's such – search Metal King Studio on Google and just explore the site. It's, it's a very – like outside of the fact this guy wrote this from these rules and designed these models, like the website is incredibly well-designed and really is a good way to like sort of explore the game a little bit. Um, but the Kickstarter that's on right now, uh, worth talking about. So the Kickstarter is called the Storms of Kural. And this is a brand new two-player starter for Relic Blade. The thing you need to know about this two-player starter is that it is good for both um, returning players and new players. Because what you get with the $85 is a scenario book with the basic rules, a set of widgets and tokens, and then four adversary characters and four advocate characters, which are the two primary factions. There are there basically there are two factions in this game, and you pick either the good guys or the bad guys. And then each of those has four sub-factions that you can basically hire at will if you'd like to. So you get one model, one single piece, doesn't have to be assembled, metal model. So that even speaks further to that family friendliness and that model friendliness. So these are all single piece sculpts. You don't have to build them. Um, and you get those eight models and the scenarios and the, the, the tokens for 85. For 100, you also get a Seeker's Handbook. So an extra 15 bucks gets you the $35 Seeker's Handbook, which, oh boy, I actually recommend wholeheartedly. <laughs> I would uh, I would up your pledge a little bit, um, Chris, to get the Seeker's Handbook in there because uh, not only is it a gorgeous hardcover book, but the author, Sean, will actually draw you uh, a special little doodle and address you specifically inside your book. Uh, and I can... Um, send pictures for our Instagram so that you can see mine because uh, they're really cool. Uh, and since I bought hard into pigs, both of mine have pigs. Um, and outside of that, there's really great stretch goals. There's shrimp goblins. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I was liking a, some of the stretch goals that we were seeing. Um, I, I, I was really interested, even though I'm, I'm probably going to play hard into the adversary. Um, I was really liking the fact that they're re-sculpting, the, the Temple of Justice. Yeah, the Temple of Justice models, because it's got the Dragonkin in there, and that just yeah. really, that model really interests me. Yeah, it's really cool. Plus, what, um, was it? what else? I saw something else in there. I mean, there's a whole new, basically, sub-faction that's coming out with the, the Akkad. So there's a, yeah, there's two neutral factions now. There was one before today, or before the Kickstarter started. Uh, now there are two. So before there was the Moldorf expedition, which is the dwarves, and that was a neutral, so they could play with either adversary or advocate. And now there's a new one, which is a CAD, which is uh, like Bronze Age goblins, which is right. also awesome. One of them is riding a friggin' magic carpet, which all on its face is amazing. Yeah, I wasn't sure yeah, if they were supposed cool. to be like deep gnomes or dark dwarves. I wasn't sure what they were supposed to be. They're goblins. They're Bronze Age goblins. Yeah. And then uh, 
then they the longbowmen or was it the was it called the long guard the lone guard watchman team those are really good looking sculpts too i yeah, like those and we didn't even get into team rules because there are cards where you get a single card that gives you two models and that's a whole other thing but um really cool um yeah amazing dude Every, everything about this game and uh, uh, that 85 or the hundred dollar thing i just advise anybody that's played a war game honestly if you're listening to this podcast and you like war games and you have the hundred bucks right now it is a uh, just like um, incredibly safe buy. Like you can't go wrong. I having played this game uh, a bunch of times now, it's quickly becoming a game that I will hold in a in a place of reverence and will get played a lot. Especially because I can play with my wife and our whole Malifaux crew is just in on it. So we're going to be doing campaigns locally to play the game. And it's one of those things because it doesn't take a long time to play. I feel like once we get out of this quarantine situation, it'll be really easy to get people to try demos. And this is a game where outside of hearing it and understanding how good it is, playing it is just a whole other thing. And it's so much fun. It's just, it's just a hell of a game. But now let's talk about if you don't want to wait. If you don't want to wait till November, uh, which is when this Kickstarter starts, uh, I have some advice on how to get into the game right away. So if you go to the website, there is a starter bundle. Uh, the starter bundle, I think, is 60 bucks or $65, and it comes with a starter pack of your choice. So of those eight factions I talked about before, uh, you pick one, and then you get a hardcover rule book. And the faction you pick will be the drawing that you get, basically, inside of your, your um, uh, Seeker's Handbook. And then I would also recommend buying the Adventure Gear pack of cards and the Seekers Campaign pack of cards. So adding $10 of cards. And then if you need to buy for two players, an additional $35 for a second starter kit. So that's uh, $65 for the starter, $10 for the cards, another $35 for another pack of models. And that is literally everything you need to start playing Relic Blade with two players uh, and the books and cards and everything that you need. And that's if you want to do it right now. So if you hear this and you're like, oh my God, I don't want to wait till November. I want to start playing Relic Blade in a week. Uh, that's what you need to go buy on the Metal King site today. So Paul, you haven't talked a lot. Where are you at? Um, I don't know if I'm in on the Kickstarter, but I'm definitely interested. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, what, just if I can ask, like, what is it, what's holding you back on the Kickstarter buy? kickstarter <laughs> <laughs> i mean okay. i can't blame him on that one all right so that being said what's what's stopping you from just knowing that potter's getting in what's stopping you from getting a starter bundle on the website the fact that his stuff's not coming till november fair enough so you think <laughs> come november this might be the kind of thing that you're into so yeah sometime sometime between now and so then, what yeah. we do right. is i'll bump it to 100 and you give me 50 bucks and we'll split it you can get the you can get the good guys. I'll take the bad guys. Let's talk offline. <laughs> <laughs> I just got meetinged. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's take this offline, guys. I just got we've corporate America. We've we've been all we've we've been on too many WebEx, <laughs> Zoom, go to meetings. Oh God, uh, yeah, Skype meetings. Yeah. Uh, kill it. Just kill me now. Yep. All right. So. Um, Relic Blade, my, my final thoughts for Relic Blade is that um, Relic Blade is the kind of miniatures game that doesn't appeal to me 
only on the gamer level it also appeals to me on the gaming with my family level like it's the kind of miniatures game where i can share this like passion that i have with my family and and they will both understand and enjoy it like my wife will play malifaux with me but uh enjoying playing malifaux is a whole different story uh whereas she has a good time with with relic blade um, and I'm planning on teaching it to Ezzy as well. And, and I think she'll have a really good time with it too. So, um, it's just, it's one of those things, right. Where it's, it has more reach potential than your standard miniatures game, uh, because it frames itself in a way that feels very similar to a role-playing game and also has very intuitive rules, um, that just about anybody I'd say over the age of eight can get into. I mean, if you have a smart six-year-old, they can probably play Relic Blade without, you know, a lot of the advanced rules. Yeah, I mean, that's my that's my plan. Set? What's up, Paul? Is there not, like, a gnome set? Uh, so there's not a gnome-specific set. But the cool thing about playing gnomes is they have some of the re- the coolest models in the line. <laughs> uh, well, there, so to, to speak on it, there is one gnome in the new starter kit. There is also, that, and there's the battlesmith. So, there's the battlesmith. All, there's it's also all, the, all yours, Paul. If you if you want to split it with me. There's also there's the Wilderkin set, Paul, which gives you a stone kind of bro, uh, a uh, um, caster lady, and a gnome on a fox. Uh, and then there's also the gnome battlesmith with ibex and standard battlesmith. Yeah, so, I was looking at the one with the ibex. Can, are they like able to play in like any of those factions? There, th- those those are advocate models, so they can play with any of the advocate faction. Right, right. Uh, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yep. So you could side. do Temple of Justice, Lone Guard, Wilderkin, or Lostwood Enclave, and they'll all play fine with that gnome on the ibex. Okay. Cool. Awesome. That's what I was curious about. I like it, the gnomes. Yeah, and and the the gnome uh, rifle person that's in the the Kickstarter is so rad. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it was, so good. Because you know, no, me, you know me. Normally, I go for the the baddies, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't necessarily like the skeletons. But my my thing after skeletons is is gnomes. I know. I'm World of Warcraft, right? I, 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 <laughs> the I ugliest, no, not not real race ever. I and they're fantastic. I hate gnomes. And and so the gnome grenadier, the character that comes in the. Uh, and it's so good. Uh, so just to give you an idea of that gnome grenadier, it has an ability called flashbang, which is a, a you roll a d4 and then you get to place up to three models one inch from their current ro- uh, location. So three. So basically, it's got a three inch range. So she can just be like, poof, and then everybody within three inches gets to move an inch. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So cool. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Plus, she's got a ten inch gun uh, and a six inch grenade that stuns. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. Yeah, that was my final thought. That was long. That was a long. Uh, that was a long final, final thought. thought. Take that out in editing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Leave that gnome, in. Gnomes are good. Cool. Paul's final thought. Chris, your final thought. I'm, I'm in, man. Uh, I'm. I hope to enjoy this with my friends. Hopefully, we'll we'll split a be splitting a box here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to playing with this with my kids and introducing them more to some of that RPG elements that I that I love and, and playing this with them. All right, I sold it to you. You sold it, Chris. That's that's amazing. Uh, so listeners, uh, if you're not on our Discord, please come on the Discord. And let me know if I also sold you because uh, this is a game I feel passionate about. 
Um, I want to grow this community because outside of the game being awesome, the Facebook community is amazing. So plug in our Discord. If you're not on the Discord, get on. It's awesome. It's one of the best. I feel like it's one of the best online communities I've been in in my adult life. And that's not just because I created it. it. I love being in there and chatting with the people that are there. I think we have some really, really cool people that are active every day on the Discord. So please join the Discord. Uh, and if you're on the Discord you're, and you're a patron, and if you're not on the Discord and you're a patron, if you're a patron at all, thank you so much. Uh, your support means everything to us. Uh, we are actually in the purchase of pr the uh, process of purchasing new recording equipment uh, to make editing for Paul easier and make our sultry voices that much better. Uh, <laughs> also, uh, thank you f uh, to Static as a City for our always badass intro and exit music. Um, and I think that takes us out of here. So if you've been listening for this entire hour plus, thank you again. And 